Dr. John Andrew Morrow makes the case that Islam and Christianity have a long history of peaceful coexistence. And so for those who say that, oh, Islam is our enemy, Muslims are our enemy, there's always been hostility between us, that is completely and totally false. The first nation to recognize the United States as a sovereign country was the Kingdom of Morocco. Uh, the Ottoman Sultan granted a treaty to the United States of America. And so there are historical precedents, right? There's a foundation there that we could build upon in order to, you know, have a better rapport between uh, Christians and Muslims. Dr. Morrow is the author of The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World. Not only are these documents a bridge between Muslims and Christians, but they're also a bridge between Sunni Muslims and Shiite Muslims. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. For the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Islamic scholar Dr. John Andrew Morrow is the author of The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World. We'll talk about those covenants and the hope they offer for peaceful coexistence. Dr. John Andrew Morrow was born in Montreal, Quebec, Canada in 1971. He's a native North American and member of the Matisse Nation. He embraced Islam at age 16. After completing his bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. studies at the University of Toronto, where he acquired expertise in Hispanic, Native, and Islamic studies. He pursued postgraduate studies in Arabic in Morocco and the United States. Besides his Western education, Dr. Morrow has completed the full cycle of traditional Islamic seminary studies, both independently and at the hands of a series of Sunni, Shia, and Sufi scholars. He's now retired from the university and engaged in scholarship He's with me via Skype from Indiana. Welcome, Dr. Morrow, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, the book that we're going to, to focus on today is uh, The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World. Uh, would you give an overview of what this book explores? Absolutely. The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World was published in 2013. It deals with the treaties and um, the covenants that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, com concluded uh, with uh, the Christian communities of his time. Uh, he granted protections of, of all kinds, civil rights and human rights, um, to obviously the, the Muslim community, but also to the people of the book, to the Jewish community, the Christian community, uh, the Samaritans, the, the Zoroastrians. Um, these documents are found in traditional Islamic sources. They're also found in ancient Christian, Jewish, Samaritan, and Zoroastrian sources. They were once well known to Muslims and non-Muslims alike, uh, knowledge of them started to fade after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire approximately uh, a century ago. Up to that point, they were known to uh, the Christian communities and to, to many of the Muslim leaders. And the best of Muslim rulers did as much as possible in order to respect them and adhere to the principles, although obviously there were some violations and some excesses over the course of history. So the book provides a history of Muslim-Christian relations 
from the 7th century until the 21st century. It analyzes all of these documents. It examines issues of historicity and authenticity. Uh, it studies them from a jurisprudential point of view. It co considers all of their, their implications and potential applications uh, in this day and age. If we look at uh, the situation in the Muslim world uh, at this moment, it is deeply disturbing. If we see how the situation has degenerated in places like Nigeria, where you have the rise of a group like Boko Haram, which has been persecuting ruthlessly the Christian population there, and the Shiite population as well. They target the Shias as much as they target uh, the Christians. If we look at the situation in Syria, where we had uh, historically Jewish people, Christians, Muslims of all kinds of different sects uh, coexisting for uh, over a thousand years. Uh, and that situation has degenerated where these different communities have turned against each other, uh, all of them being persecuted by, uh, by Daesh uh, or ISIS. Uh, the situation in Iraq was very grim after the American invasion and occupation and all the sectarian strife that ensued. Um, so this is a time when we really need to go back to the sources and examine what the Prophet Muhammad actually taught when it comes to, uh, to how to treat the other, how to treat our neighbors, how to live and how to coexist together. So it's really the issue of the time and the age. And these covenants really are a major find. Uh, uh, these texts uh, are or could be really authoritative texts for Islam. Is that right? Absolutely. We are dealing with primary documents, with ancient manuscripts. Um, in Islam, we have two sources of authority. We have the Quran, which is considered the word of God. And then we have the Hadith or the Sunnah, which are compilations of sayings or statements attributed to the Prophet that were recorded hundreds of years after his passing, many of them passed down through the oral tradition. But these covenants are actually physical documents, ancient documents that have been transmitted consecutively from the 7th century until the present. We know who the scribes were. We know who, were, who the, 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 the witnesses were. So from a scholarly point of view, they... they um, in terms of evidence, they're far weighty. Uh, they, they have far greater weight than things that would pass down through the oral tradition. Um, many of these documents were known, and as I mentioned, are included in canonical Muslim sources, and they're also found in uh, historical sources. Uh, emanating from the, the Christian milieu and the Jewish and Samaritan milieu. So we have many different communities uh, who come together to confirm the authenticity of, uh, of these documents. And in Islam, we have a, a tradition, which is the Sunni tradition, and we have the Shiite tradition, and, and quite often uh, in certain areas, there's disagreement. But interestingly, we find that the Sunni sources confirm these documents, and the Shiite sources confirm them. So not only are these documents a bridge between Muslims and Christians, but they're also a bridge between Sunni Muslims and Shiite Muslims when it comes to how we should treat the other. Well, the question I was going to ask was, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, with uh, 1 uh, being a forgery and 10 being absolutely authentic, uh, where would these covenants land? Well, as a scholar, I don't like to speak in absolutes. Um, we have many different covenants. There are dozens of them. Uh, the book that we mentioned, The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World, focuses on six major covenants. Uh, one of them is the covenant with the, the, the monks from St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai. There's another one directed to the Christians of the world. Uh, another one 
uh, was addressed to the Assyrian Christians, another one to, to the Christians of Persia, and then there are documents that were provided to, to the Armenian Christians, to the Christians of Najran, and so on and so forth. So we need to examine all of these documents independently. And this is what I've done in uh, the follow-up work, which is called Islam and the People of the Book, Critical Studies on the Covenants of the Prophet. It is a three-volume encyclopedic work published by Cambridge Scholars at the end of 2017. Um, I'm the editor-in-chief of, of, uh, of that work. Uh, over a dozen leading scholars from around the world have contributed chapters. It also includes translations of the major covenants in over a dozen languages. So, inshallah, God willing, it will become an important reference source uh, for students and scholars in the future. In that work, I trace back all of these covenants. I did everything possible to unearth every single reference to them from the 7th century to the present uh, in dozens of different languages to see what others thought about them, to find any references to them. And so some of them are very well documented, uh, the Sinai Covenant being foremost among them. Uh, hundreds upon hundreds of authorities over the centuries have authenticated that document. So from a scholarly point of view, uh, the evidence for its authenticity is simply overwhelming. And those who question it, unfortunately, these type of people come in two categories. Number one, they're simply ignorant. If they were familiar with all of these references and all of these sources, if they were objective, they would incline towards authenticity. And then you have others who have an agenda that no matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter what proofs you provide, they will never, ever accept the, the remote possibility that there could be any good in the Prophet, in the Quran, Islam, or uh, in the Islamic tradition. So, you know, you have that group of people who've already made up their mind, and other people who just reject without actually having examined um, all of the evidence. So, many of these documents, I would say, yes, they would rank uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10. Others, you know, some that were, were provided to communities that lived in very remote areas that didn't have as much contact with people. I mean, if you take, you know, the Sinai Peninsula, if you take St. Catherine's Monastery, this is a site of pilgrimage for, for, you know, it's a holy site to Jewish people, to Christians and to Muslims. So many, many people have been to that monastery. Many people, uh, the monks have been displaying it uh, in their monastery proudly since the 7th century for all visitors to see. And so we have all of these, uh, these, uh, these travelers and all of these pilgrims of different faiths who uh, attest to the authenticity of this document and so on consistently over the centuries. But if you're dealing with a, a tiny a church uh, in, in Mesopotamia, uh, you know, or, or, or in very remote parts of Turkey, these are not places that were frequented by many people. And so instead of having 300 authorities who've confirmed it over uh, the course of history, you might have 30. You might have 40, you might have 50, but nonetheless, it's significant, the amount of people belonging to different faith traditions, scholars of all kinds, religious authorities, who have acknowledged that these documents are indeed genuine. Um, so these are not things that we should take lightly, especially when we examine their content. There is nothing in the covenants of the Prophet Muhammad that contradict the Quran or the authentic sunnah or hadith as we know it. They do not contradict the basic principles of Islamic law. And we find that many of the rulings found in Islamic law were drawn or derived from these covenants. They don't contradict common sense. They're actually extremely advanced for their time. You would have to wait until modern times, until the 20th century, uh, with the, uh, the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, with uh, the constitutions of certain European nations. You'd have to look at the Bill of Rights here in the United States in order to find something comparable, or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, because 
all of these rights were granted by this man, Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, in the 7th century, uh, which is some, something that is simply astonishing. He was clearly a man who was uh, ahead of his time. These ideas of coexistence and pluralism and tolerance, this was truly unprecedented. Well, you know, I'm reading uh, one from the Covenant of the Prophet Muhammad uh, and the monks at Mount Sinai. In your book, uh, a quote, it says, uh, Do not molest those that have a veneration for the books that are sent from God, speaking of Christian and Jewish texts, but rather, in a kind manner, give of your good things to them and converse with them and hinder everyone from molesting them. I mean, that's as tolerant a statement as any I've heard. <laughs> Absolutely, and and it's paraphrasing the Quran. And in some of the, the, the these covenants, the Prophet is actually citing from the Quran that you know you should uh, if you are if you argue with people or you dispute with with people that you should do it in the best of ways and that it should be constructive and and productive and it shouldn't be destructive. Uh, he describes the Christian as his flock. He describes himself as as their pastor or shepherd, who is responsible to you know to protect them. He warns that if anyone violates the covenants that he's granted uh, to the Christians, if anyone persecutes the Christians or wrongs them, uh, that he will testify against them, that he will be their enemy. Uh, on the Day of Judgment. And actually, that saying is found in the authentic books of traditions of the Sunni and Shiite Muslims, that whoever oppresses uh, a person who is protected by a covenant, uh, you know, that the Prophet will, uh, will be their enemy on the Day of Judgment. So, the covenants of the Prophet should be on the shelves uh, of every Muslim family in their homes, right next to the Quran, and uh, you know, I would say that you know every Christian should have them as well. But the fact of the matter is, the Christian religious authorities in the Muslim world already have the covenants of the Prophet on their shelves and also on the walls of their churches and their monasteries and their cathedrals and their patriarchates. Uh, they have never forgotten. Uh, many of these documents, I've obtained them from, you know, the Armenian Christians, uh, from the Greek Orthodox Christians. They have always honored and revered these documents and have displayed them in their monasteries, uh, you know, since time immemorial. So, at least the in the upper echelons of these Christian churches, knowledge of these covenants has, has never disappeared. Yeah, we need to, to, to remind all the Christians in the Muslim world and all the Christians outside of the Muslim world that these documents do exist and that there is a basis, there is a foundation for uh, Christian-Muslim unity and uh, coexistence. There just seems to be a truism that uh, Islam and Christianity cannot coexist. It's a winner-take-all. A typical question, or rather a statement, that I hear uh, from American Christians is that Muhammad uh, was a military commander as much as a spiritual leader, and that Islam spread through conquest. And, and when I point out Christian violence and conquest, it's not taken as seriously. That somehow American Christians believe that Christian violence is an aberration to Christianity, but Muslim violence is inherent in the faith itself. So my question to you, Dr. Morrow, is this attitude the result of typical religious ethnocentrism that all have toward the other, or is this the result of a concerted effort of Islam Islamophobic propaganda? Unfortunately, it's, uh, you know, on the one hand, it's the result of ignorance. On the other hand, um, it's a result of propaganda, and propaganda exploits the fact that people are, are ignorant of, of these realities. Uh, when I published this book, I sent copies of it. Well, actually, the Covenants Initiative sent copies of the Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the world to all the major Christian leaders in the Middle East in order to tell them that uh, what groups like ISIS and uh, Al Nusra and Al Qaeda and the Taliban and Boko Haram, what they were doing was uh, a violation of the teachings of the Prophet, that these people were not true Muslims at all. And the Christians responded. The Christians of the Middle East, the patriarch said, we know. We've lived with Muslims for 1,400 years, and we have these covenants from the Prophet. We know that what these people are doing is not Islamic, all right? Uh, and they said, you need to educate the Christians in the Western world who believe that uh, that's not the case. Um, 
And so, yes, we, we started uh, sending these documents to Christian leaders in the Western world, and uh, we provided a copy to, to Pope Francis. And the Italian version of the book has been provided to all the major figures in the, in the Catholic hierarchy. And, you know, we've provided it to all kinds of different ministers, uh, Southern Baptists and so on, who are very open uh, to, to these, these revelations. Um, so, yes, that's the situation that we're in. Dr. John Morrow is my guest on Progressive Spirit. He's the author of The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad uh, with the Christians of the World. You mentioned right at the beginning of the interview that uh, these covenants were known all the way up till, did I hear that right, up till 100 years ago. Uh, what happened then? I mean, were they actively suppressed? You know, I would have to give you an overview of uh, Islamic history. So the Prophet Muhammad receives revelation and so on, and he preaches, and in Medina he prepared something known as the Constitution of Medina, in which he gave rights to all of the citizens of his new nation-state. And it specifically states that the Muslims and, and the Jews are brothers to one another, and they have equal rights and so on and so forth. So all of that was established from the very beginning of uh, Islam as a political uh, system, uh, as a government. After the Prophet Muhammad passed away, there were uh, four rightly guided leaders, as they were called, and they did their best to follow the teachings of the Prophet and the covenants. Uh, but then there was a, uh, Islam degenerated into a series of, of, of dynasties. Uh, you had the Umayyads, and then you had the Abbasids, and then you had many, many other dynasties and so on. Now, some of them were better than others, but all of them were, uh, were somewhat removed from the true teachings of the prophets and the Quran and the Sunnah and, and all of that. In some cases, the covenants were respected. In other cases, not so much. In other cases, not at all. The Ottomans, however unlike some of the previous dynasties, really took the covenants of the Prophet to heart and made, made them the, the, the basis uh, of their uh, domestic policy, their foreign policy. All right, So you had Christian communities, Jewish communities that were protected inside of the Ottoman Empire, but they also, the Ottomans made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of treaties with uh, with Christian Europeans, with the French, for example, they had an alliance. Uh, they even made a treaty. They granted a covenant of the Prophet to the United States of America. And, and so this is incredible that there was actually a formal understanding between the Caliph or the Sultan of Islam and the Christians of the United States of America. And so for those who say that, oh, Islam is our enemy, Muslims are our enemy, there's always been hostility between us, that is completely and totally false. The first nation to recognize the United States as a sovereign country was the Kingdom of Morocco. Uh, the Ottoman Sultan granted a treaty to the United States of America. And so there are historical precedents Right? There's a foundation there that we could build upon in order to you know, have a better rapport between uh, Christians and Muslims. My guest again, uh, John Andrew Morrow, The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World is his book. And you have a website uh, called covenantsoftheprophet.org. And yes, indeed, covenantsoftheprophets.com uh, or .org. We have a Facebook page and a Twitter account and so on. And on YouTube, we have hundreds of videos related to the covenants of the prophets. Uh, and so we would encourage uh, listeners to check out uh, some of those resources. One of the uh, recent uh, articles there is an interview uh, with you, uh, the title, Muslims in North America, and the focus, quote, uh, is not Muslim enough for the masjids, too Muslim for Western society. But you entered, ended the interview with this sentence, um, they, that is transnational Muslims, need to cast off their cultural chrysalis and emerge as beautiful Western Muslim butterflies. Can you talk more about being Muslim and Western? Yes. Uh, you know, as as you mentioned, I'm the product of a of a Catholic upbringing and a Catholic education, and uh, I'm profoundly grateful that I was raised in the Christian tradition, um, and that I grew up reading the Bible, and that I was familiar with the Old Testament and the New Testament. My role models as a child growing up were the prophets, 
right? Prophet Elijah, John the Baptist. I was, I was profoundly inspired uh, by the Bible and by uh, its ethical, uh, moral, and uh, spiritual teachings. Uh, when I was about 13, I started to study world religions. Uh, of, of course, I had studied the Bible. I studied Hindu scripture and Buddhist scripture and so on. You name it, I studied it. I studied all kinds of apocryphal works. And I, I came across the Quran, and it truly resonated with me. Um, because I already had that Judeo-Christian foundation, and to me, it it, it helped me, you know, to 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 complete my faith and faith and perfect my faith. Um, so I'm truly indebted to, to to Christianity. I don't view myself as someone who's converted from one thing to another. I just view view it as another step in my personal spiritual um, development. So. When I studied Islam, I studied Islam objectively, all right? Uh, it's, you know, when you're born into a tradition, so you have people who are born into, like, Sunni families, and they're staunchly Sunni. It's part of their identity. It's who they are, okay? Then you have people who are born into, like, a Shiite family, and, you know, you know they're staunch, and, 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 you know, they're fervent, and so on. Or, or people are born into a Sufi family. And so... They didn't start with a blank slate. They just assume that the tradition that they were given, in which they were raised, in which they were educated, is true and correct. But if you're an outsider and you come in and you examine this tradition, you do it with an open mind. Hmm? Unless, of course, you, you fall into the influence of you know certain people who try to brainwash you and so on. So I was able to, to distinguish between the teachings of Islam and culture. If you look at, the, at, at Muslims, they come from many different cultures and nationalities and ethnicities and speak many different languages and so on. There's a lot of Islam in their cultures, but there are a lot of things that are un-Islamic. They will insist that this is part of their faith, this is part of the religion, when it isn't. I'm talking about, you know, misogyny and the treatment of women uh, and, uh, you know, all of the bad things, that, <laughs> all of these bad things uh -huh. that Islamophobes use to accuse Islam and Muslims has, not, ha, you know, has nothing to do with, with Islam. Female genital mutilation has nothing to do with Islam. You know, beating women has nothing to do with Islam. Uh, you know, honor killings, this has nothing to do with Islam. Uh, you know, terrorism, it has nothing to do with Islam. Um, you know, and uh, yes. So um, in that quote... I was simply saying that Muslims who come to the Western world need to step back, re-examine their tradition, study their religion, and pass everything through a filter, through a truly Islamic filter, and to keep the good things and to get rid of the bad things. Because some of these people bring a lot of baggage uh, with them, that they present as Islam and Islamic, which has nothing to do with the faith. So I'm concerned with primordial principles, morals, fundamental ethical values. These are things that are shared by all major uh, world religions, revealed religions. So there's a great, of great deal of commonality uh, in those areas and plenty of potential to make uh, partnerships with the Jewish people and with Christian people. Uh, yes, for spiritual reasons and for reasons of social justice. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm speaking with John Andrew Morrow. He's the author of The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World. More to come. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. 
You're listening to Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm speaking with Dr. John Andrew Morrow. His website is JohnAndrewMorrow.com. We're talking about the historical relationship between Christianity and Islam. You know, I want to talk with you a little bit more about uh, the groups that, that you've mentioned, such as Daesh and the Salafists, the Wahhabists. H- how do they connect with Islam on the family tree? And, and, and are these movements relatively new? I, I'm, I'm wondering, and I have no, I'm thinking Christianity, fundamentalism, is relatively new, uh, not much older than a century and a half, mostly uh, in response to modern historical criticism of the Bible. But what about these Islamic fundamentalisms? How did they develop? This is an excellent question. There are some parallels between the situation in the Muslim community and the situation in the Christian community. You mentioned that this Christian fundamentalism and extremism and so on is relatively recent. The same thing can be said of what is known as radical Islam or Islamic fundamentalist. These movements trace back to what is known as as you mentioned, Wahhabism or Salafism, which is a movement that is only 150, 200 years old, uh, that was founded by a man known as Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab in the Najd region of what is now Saudi Arabia. This is a man who misinterpreted the Quran. In the Quran, there are verses that speak of unbelievers, all right, and polytheists. So unbeliever or, you know, kufar or polytheist, mushrikeen. And he applied, he had the audacity to apply these terms to Muslims. He accused his own fellow Muslims of being infidels and of being polytheists. And as a result of that, he said that, that it was permissible to shed their blood, and it wasn't a sin. So we have his group of fanatics who emerge out of the Najd region of Arabia, and they start terrorizing the Muslims. Muslims, like many Christians, uh, were fond of performing pilgrimages to the graves of, uh, of prophets and saints and religious leaders and so on. This has been normative in Islam from its early days. He said that if you visit the prophet's grave, for example, that you're a grave worshiper, that you're an idolater, that you're a, uh, you know, an infidel whose blood is halal. It's also been normative in Islam from the very beginning to ask for intercession. Just like you would ask someone, you know, brother, can you pray for me? Can you make a supplication for me? And so Muslims used to, you know, they would say, you know, oh God, uh, you know, by Muhammad or, you know, by Fatima or by Ali, uh, can you please answer my prayer? So this wasn't polytheism. It wasn't saint worship. It's called intercession. He said anyone who did that was an infidel. So all the Sunnis, all the Shiites, and all the the Sunnis, because he believed that only his followers, uh, the Wahhabis or the Salafis, they wouldn't even call themselves Muslims. They would call themselves muwahhadun, monotheists, because they were the the, the only true pure monotheists. And all the other Muslims were infidels. And so they unleashed the rage on the Muslims to the point that they were going to destroy the grave of the Prophet Muhammad. The Egyptians at that point threatened war if they did any damage. Uh, But before reaching that point, they had raised the cemetery in Medina to the ground completely destroyed and desecrated all the graves of uh, the companions of the Prophet, the family members of the Prophet, all of these holy personalities and saints. That's how much they respected Islam. And so whenever you hear about people blowing up Sufi shrines or desecrating graves and so on, you know exactly who the culprits are, who these people are. Now, there was a religious or ideological movement, which was Salafism or Wahhabism. But there was something else going on in that part of the world at the time. It was 
uh, a result of British imperialism. Yeah. And so you had the Ottoman Empire, okay? And so you're dealing in the 1800s, 1900s, and so on. The European powers conspire in order to debilitate, weaken, divide the Ottoman Empire because it was, it was a superpower of the time. And so they sent their agents, right? You can watch movies like Lawrence of Arabia where they, they present this character in a romantic light. All of these people were spies and agents sent by the British in order to destroy the Ottoman Empire. And so they, they planted the seeds of nationalism and independence in the minds of the Arabs, telling them that, oh, the Ottomans are bad. Uh, you should fight against them. You deserve your own country. You should have a nation. And that Arabs never had a sense of nationhood. They were and continue to be profoundly tribal people. Even in Arab countries to this day, they're not going to vote for a candidate. They're going to vote for someone who's running for the election who belongs to their tribe or is connected to their kin. They're not going to vote for someone who has a good platform if he belongs to another tribe. As a result of British meddling, you have, you know, Wahhabism and Salafism being supported, and then it's more secular branch. They found this family, the Saud family, and said, okay, you're going to be the kings and so on, so you need religious fervor, and you people are going to run it. And all of this coincides more or less with the discovery of oil and so on. And so anyhow, what you end up is having the disintegration of the Ottoman world. So that's what they were doing in Arabia, but uh, in like uh, Mesopotamia or northern Iraq or, or southern Turkey, they were stirring things up there, telling the Assyrians that you need to revolt against these people. We're going to support you. You're going to have your own country. The Ottoman Empire is backwards. Europe is this glorious civilization, and these Ottoman Turks are holding you back. They, you know, the same thing. They, they tried to stir up the Armenians. And anyhow, uh, uh, you know, as students of history know, you ended up, ha you ended up having a bloodbath throughout uh, the former Ottoman Empire. So, yes, this extreme form of Islam, which is really anti-Islam, is extremely recent. They did base themselves on some earlier uh, ideologues. Uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was uh, profoundly influenced by a man known as Ibn Taymiyyah. You're talking about, you know, the 13th century, so on. 12th century, 13th century, who was an outcast during his day, who was denounced by all the scholars of the time. He said that, you know, it was the obligation of everyone to follow him. And he accused all other Muslims of being infidels. He wrote books, the Shias are infidels and the Sufis are infidels. And, you know, uh, you know, uh, all of these ideas uh, of, of persecuting Christians and minorities and everything. It, it, it's like, if you read Ibn Taybiyyah, it, it's like, it's a complete and total perversion of Islamic teachings. Uh, and so this was the person who influenced uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. And before that, you would have to go back to a group known as the Khawarij or the Kharijites. And so uh, after the Prophet passed away, there was Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali. Uh, and there was a group that broke away uh, called the Khawarij. And they insisted that the followers of Ali, the Shias, were infidels, but also the followers of Muawiyah and Aisha, who, who were the, uh, the ancestors of the Sunnis, uh, were infidels as well, and that only they were Muslims. They committed all sorts of atrocities, and, and they were the first people to do what is known as takfir, which means excommunication. Uh, they were the first people to call Muslims infidels and kill them. And so these Salafi Wahhabi groups are known as, by Muslims as takfiris, people who do takfir or people who do excommunication. So they are excommunicators. Yes, they think they're the only true believers and that everyone else besides them is, uh, should be put to the sword. These people fortunately represent a tiny minority in the Muslim world. I mean, less than 1% of Muslims actually follow this uh, this corrupted, demented, and de demonic ideology. Their bark is bigger than their bite. What do I mean by that? 
since they've been supported by the Saudis, right, from day one, their message reaches people at a disproportionate rate because there's billions and billions of dollars behind that message of Islam. They've been trying to propagate it through their universities, their television stations, uh, book publishers, yes, funding mosques, funding Islamic associations. They've had uh, a disproportionate amount of influence. Um, so th I, that gives you a, you know, a... That relatively was... brief overview of uh, of the situation, and so it's it's a supreme injustice to put Muslims, ninety nine percent of Muslims, in, in the same category as you know the Salafi Wahhabi Takfiris, who uh, are the greatest uh, enemies uh, uh, of Islam imaginable. Exactly. John Andrew Morrow, Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad uh, with the Christians of the World is his book. Dr. John Andrew Morrow is my guest. And and one of the things that uh, gets me most is how um, these groups are used and funded by elements within the United States government and Israel's government as well to go in and make all kinds of trouble. Uh, you wrote, uh, and now we are a witness to the widespread Islamist violence against Christians in places like Syria and Egypt, often perpetrated by groups fighting as proxies for the United States and, and Israel. It's nothing short of providential that the covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the world should see the light of day at this precise historical moment. Make a comment on that if you like, but also comment on, on the covenants initiative. So these extremists and fanatics who've committed all kinds of crimes were supported by the British. They were also supported by the French. They were also supported by the Germans. If you study history, you will find that many different European powers used these Salafi Wahhabi takfiris in order to advance their geopolitical goals and aims in the Muslim world. And so the French are not quite as influential as they used to be, and Britain is a thing of the past, and who's the major superpower in the world? It's the United States, and they inherited the mantle from the British and so on. And so we find that... Um, you have Russia, the Soviet Union, they invade Afghanistan, and obviously the United States does not want to confront Russia directly because it could lead to a geothermal nuclear war. And so they use proxies, and so they round up these Salafi Wahhabi Takfiri jihadists from madrasas in Pakistan, and uh, they finance these people in Afghanistan all of this is organized by the CIA. All of this is funded by the United States, by our taxpayers' money. And so they fund the Mujahideen in order to fight the Russians. Among these groups, of course, was Al-Qaeda, led by Osama bin Laden, who would turn around and bite his master, some would say, those who believe that he betrayed us, or he was still the obedient dog that he always was. And, uh, you know, 9-11 was part and parcel of these greater geopolitical plans in order to justify continued wars of aggression and occupation and exploitation uh, in the greater Middle East. The Mujahideen, Al-Qaeda, and then the Taliban, many of these groups supported by the United States, some of them supported by the French, Ahmed Shah Massoud, he was financed by the French. Some of these groups were also financed by the Indians. So these are Islamist jihadists who were funded by the Hindu polytheists. Okay? Then you look at what's going on in the Middle East, uh, a group like ISIS, right? Daesh. And we know for a fact that these people were trained in Jordan under the supervision of the CIA. And they were sent into Syria in order to, to stir things up, right? They would go and massacre Sunnis and blame it on the Shias, and massacre Shias and blame it on the Sunnis in order to stir up ethnic conflict, sectarian strife, they'd commit atrocities and then, you know, blame it on the government and so on. So they were involved in that. 
There is no doubt about it. Authorities have come forward in the United States to admit that that was the fact, that the choice was Assad or these people, and they decided to fund these people. That is how they work. They, you know, they're interested in outcomes. Uh, they couldn't really care less how they reach those outcomes. We live in a world that is not ruled by the best of people, the most righteous of people, the most pious of people. We live in a world that is ruled and governed by the worst of humanity. These people are not human beings according to any stretch of the, uh, of the imagination. These are people who are completely and totally demonic, who will decide you know, to kill people uh, at the snap of their fingers, who couldn't care less if a million people died in Iraq during the American invasion and occupation. They couldn't care less about these things. They are concerned about global domination. They're concerned about full-spectrum uh, dominance. Uh, they're, con they're, they're concerned about their, what they consider their interests, and uh, they will uh, spare nothing in order to reach their goals. And so, yes, we Muslims bear the blunt of Islamophobia, okay? And so... <laughs> Yes, I mean, it, it's terrible. The people who, 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 who denounce ISIS and, and all of these uh, so-called uh, Islamist extremists are, are the same people who are funding them. Uh, it's like you have yeah. a two-headed monster. Uh, and unfortunately, that is the reality. And sometimes it is difficult uh, for people to, to understand this, that Al-Qaeda is us. Al-Nusra and Al-Daesh is us, right? Um it's deeply disturbing, but that is the reality, and we hope that people will, will take the right pill and decide to, to open their eyes and turn on the lights and see things for what they are. Dr. John Andrew Morrow, The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World, is his book. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, that was a great speech right there. Uh, I, I wanted to say preach it um, because I, I want to talk about now, just with you with a couple of minutes left, how important it is for people of goodwill um, uh, to take the beautiful traditions uh, of, of our religions, the best of Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam, and, and, uh, and, and find ways to work together to get to the truth of the matter, to, to get the truth of, of not only our histories, but, but what we can be. It, it doesn't have to be an end game in which it's winner-take-all, does it? No, absolutely not. What have you seen? Where have you seen um, positive things happen? Of course, you and I, I met you at the Husseinia Society of Seattle, a new group uh, uh, they're talking about. And I, I'm impressed with that work of, of working with scholarship and, and, and interfaith and interreligious activities. Uh, do, you, do you see uh, some positive work there in terms of uh, interfaith work to get to, to get to the truth of things? Um, yes. Absolutely. Um, well, in the interfaith movement, one has to be careful. There are genuine, genuine initiatives out there where, you know, we all respect our different traditions and we recognize that we are distinct and we want to live together and coexist and we want to focus on what we share in common. And, you know, we can have minor disagreements, but it's never going to come to blows. Uh, that type of interfaith work, I am for that. As for this interfaith work that is supported by the globalists and these elites, which means that we're just going to commingle all of these traditions and, you know, mix it and cook it in a pot like gumbo so that, you know, our faith traditions became, become completely diluted and turn into some sort of stew. Uh, I would oppose any of those efforts, and quite often when you trace back, you know, who's behind these movements and who's funding them, ultimately their goal is to weaken and destroy religion and impose secularism as the new world religion. But genuine grassroots interfaith efforts that are not linked to centers of power, I would uh, definitely and certainly support. As, as a Christian minister, one of the challenges that I have as a minister, is constructing Christian worship services. Uh, the Hebrew scriptures are, of course, part of our worship tradition, but not the Quran. Uh, and so when I include an English translation of the Quran, say, in a worship service or a sermon, I, I'm concerned that I might be misappropriating the text, the things that you're just talking about. Uh, I hope that taking that risk is better than, than not doing anything. 
But have you seen, say, Christian worship respectfully include a uh, theology of Islam? Um, well, yes, indeed. It was once customary for the Christians in the Muslim world to actually read the covenants of the Prophet Muhammad uh, during Mass, um, which is very, very interesting. We know that these documents were, I mean, there are people who argue that these are Christian forgeries, but the fact of the matter is these documents were produced by the Ottomans. They were granted by the Sultan. They were authenticated, they were signed, they were notarized by the chief mufti, by the grand vizier. So these are not documents that were produced or forged by Christians. They are documents that were issued by, from the Ottoman chancellery. And all of the churches and all the monasteries that were protected by the sultan, by the order of the sultan, had copies of the covenant of the prophet on display in order to remind the Christians that they were protected, and in order to remind non-Christians that these people had the protection of the sultan, and they are guaranteed the religious freedom. And so these documents were on display, but they were also read uh, as part of uh, mass in some of, these, uh, uh, some of these communities. So these are people who, didn't, who were not Muslims. You know, they didn't believe... Uh, you know that that you know that the Prophet Muhammad was the messenger of God, or if or uh, they accepted that he was sent by God to the Arab Arab pagans and polytheists to guide them towards monotheism, and that was God's will. Uh, and so we found some Jewish communities in Yemen and in Egypt who held the same view uh, that uh, Muhammad was indeed a true prophet sent to those people, but that they could continue with their Jewish faith or their Christian faith. So if they viewed it that way and respectfully and included the covenants of the prophet or citations from the Quran uh, you know, that they agreed with, uh, then I see no problem in that. Uh, yes, I mean, the Islamic tradition shares a great deal in common with uh, the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition. I mean, if you read the Quran, you will find all of the stories. Uh, all of the stories from uh, the Old Testament and all kinds of elements from, from the New Testament and things that you find in apocryphal Gospels, uh, it is very much part of the same, you know, Abrahamic tradition. Um, so, yes, there's no problem. Uh, uh, you know, I, as Muslims, we are free to quote from the Bible from the Gospels and from the Old Testament, and I see no reason why Jews and Christians couldn't do the same. Dr. John Morrow uh, is the author of The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World. Uh, his, the website uh, for that covenants is covenantsoftheprophet.org. Uh, Dr. Morrow, thank you so much uh, for your work and for uh, spending time with me today. Thank you very much. I'm quite honored. I'm excited to welcome a new radio station that carries progressive spirit. WEJP 107.1 is a new station in Wheeling, West Virginia. Catch progressive spirit on WEJP 107.1 every Saturday morning at 10. WEJP joins a dozen or more stations that carry progressive spirit. Progressive spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well.